0: If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 14. Matthew 14 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. Um, I, I, got, I got a word for you this morning, and I hope that you came prepared to receive it uh, because it is a revelation to me that God actually gave me before Pastor Troy asked me to teach this morning. Uh, He's actually taught it to me, uh, or God actually taught it to me as PT has been teaching, and as PT has been teaching through the series uh, that we've been in. So the series we're in is called Make Room. Everybody say Make Room. room. I really hope Second Service got this much participation. I did the same thing you just did last week, precipitation, participation. Uh, I really hope they do. Y'all got some energy this morning. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, But Make Room has been our theme uh, for the year. It's been our theme. Obviously, it's been our series this uh, this month. It's been our theme for the entire year. Uh, And the vision that God gave Pastor Troy is that we would begin making room for God to move, not just at City Church through our services, um, through events, through city groups, through serve days, through all that stuff, but actually that we would make room individually in our marriages, in our parenting, in our finances, in our walk uh, with God. And so we've done the past three weeks, uh, Pastor Troy's been talking about emptying jars, digging ditches, talked about humility last week, and all these different things that we can do to make room. And the word that God gave me to give to City Church this morning is that we don't just make room for God, God actually makes room for us. I'm going to let it sit. Some of y'all got to think about it a little harder than others, so. We don't just make room for God. God actually has uh, situations and moments where he makes room for us. So if you're taking notes, the title of the message this morning is there's room for everyone. There's room for everyone. So when we are making room for God, we are are leaving a space between where we are and where we want to be. And that space is filled up with two things, surrender and sacrifice. So fasting, what is fasting? Sacrificing my flesh and leaving room from where I am to where I want to be. But sometimes God has to make room for us because where we want to be is not where we're supposed to be. And so when God makes room for us, it's a space between where we are and where God wants us to be. And that space isn't necessarily filled with surrender and sacrifice. It's actually filled with obedience and trust. Now, obedience, it can be a sacrifice. Trust is surrender, right? They're all correlated. But when there is a space between when God makes room for you in your life, when there's a space between where you are right now and where God wants to take you, the only way to get there is obedience and trusting in him. Maybe, hmm trying to get to ahead of my message. But maybe the space between where you are, I'm going to keep repeating it until you get it, and where God wants you to be is the water you have to walk on. See, some of y'all, you know what Matthew 14 is. You know the story we're talking about this morning. And so we're going to talk about obedience and trust this morning as we learn that God actually makes room for us. So when I say there's room for everyone, I'm not actually talking about there's room in heaven for everyone, although there is. And God made that room. I'm actually talking about how everybody in here has room in your life where you are not obeying or you are not trusting. I came to be in your business this morning. You, Pastor Troy told you I was going to be here this morning. So you knew what was coming. There's space between, I'm going to say it one more time, where you are and where God wants you to be. Because maybe the place that you want to be is not actually where he's wanting to take you. And that space is filled with obedience and trust. God is not a dictator, meaning God is a leader, meaning God doesn't force you to do anything. He will make suggestions. (laughs) He will make uh, recommendations on what to do, but he's not a dictator. He doesn't force you to do anything. He doesn't make you go somewhere or obey or trust. You can do what you want. That may not be a a message that pastors on Sundays may speak or may preach, but you can do what you want. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to obey. You don't have to love Jesus if you don't want to. But your life is better when you are obedient to what he's trying to get you to do. He doesn't force you to do anything. And so people think, well, Pastor Braden." What about, um, what about all those commandments that I read in the Old Testament? What about the Ten Commandments? What about the other 600 commandments that are all over Scripture? That's for you. That ain't for him. Those commandments are boundaries that God has set up to protect you because he loves you. You don't have to obey. Now, as a Christian, a good mindset is I got to obey no matter what I'm going through. I got to obey no matter how much I feel it. But I need you to know this morning that because God loves you so much, he's giving you the ability to choose. Free will? The ability to do what I want? That's because God loves you so much. God didn't want a relationship with robots. He didn't want a relationship with, with people that aren't actually choosing to love him. Because it's in the choice that the sacrifice and the obedience is actually made. Okay, but Pastor Braden, listen. Listen, listen, listen. I really like getting drunk. And if God loves me so much, then why do I feel convicted? I'm all up in. Somebody just. If God loves me so much, then why is he not okay with me getting drunk? Why do I feel so convicted by Jesus when I get drunk? Because you're numbing pain is trying to heal. Okay, Pastor Braden, listen. Now, this whole monogamy thing—having sex with one person—it's just not. I want to have sex with just whoever I want. But we're talking about sex this morning. That's okay, because you're talking about it at home, and you're looking at it on TikTok and Facebook. God, I really just want to have sex with whoever. Why? Why? Why does God? Why is the Bible ordained that one husband, one wife, one person? Because you have a lust issue. And the solution to lust isn't sex. It's self-control. Okay, I just wanted to hit the, I don't know, who. So I felt like somebody needed to hear that this morning. So I'm just going to move on. So again, boundaries are set up for protection out of love. If you want to step outside those boundaries, you can. But when you step outside those boundaries, that's when you get hurt. So I want to, as we get into the message, I want to actually paint a picture for you. Because I don't want to get into obedience as in, if you don't obey, God hates you. Like, grace is sufficient. If you don't obey, God still loves you. If you don't obey, God still has a purpose for you. If you don't obey, God still, you don't have to earn love from God. You don't have to earn grace. You don't have to earn from him. And so I want to paint this picture to kind of help us understand uh, grace uh, as we get into our, our story in a little bit. So I want you to imagine two people, two guys. Guy number one, we're going to call him... Richard, we'll call him Richard. I'm trying. To, I don't want the. I don't know if anybody's name in here is Richard. If it is, I'm not talking about you. Um, we're gonna call him Richard. Richard, Richard has been a Christian since he was like 12. Received salvation at a very young age. And Richard, he's about 40 now. Um, he's been through a lot. He has a drinking problem, and that drinking problem has led to a divorce with his wife, and he lost custody of his kids, and now they live with his, his ex-wife. Um, he's gone through a really rough season. Um, and he works at a, at a business uh, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, just a normal, normal job. And so he's, get, he's ready to, to go to work the next day. And he's got a really, really big day ahead of him because he's going to have a meeting with his boss and their bosses about uh, an idea to implement in the business. And if they take this idea, it gives him more responsibilities. And so he's actually going to also ask for a raise because he's going to have more responsibilities. And so Richard, he's got to be there at 9. He plans on getting there at 8.30. I'm going to get there early. Uh, he wakes up at 7.30, he gets on his phone, and then he, and he wakes up at 8.45. Some of y'all, uh, this happened like yesterday, for or Friday. <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, <laughs> so... He falls asleep. He wakes up at 8.45. He ain't even got time to shower. Brushes his teeth. Brushes his greasy hair. Puts deodorant on. Puts his clothes on. Gets into work at like 9:10. 10. You see they're a little late. And he finds out that the meeting is pushed back to the end of the day instead of the beginning of the day. And on the way to work, though, he was really hungry, and so he got the really hearty, really healthy Got him a sausage biscuit and a burrito and a hash brown. He had to get him a coffee because he wasn't awake because he didn't have time to shower. And just to make sure he has some extra caffeine, he also got him a Coke for breakfast. Gets it all down. He gets to work. He's at his desk. And now he's stressing out because now his meeting isn't until later. And so all morning he's looking over his notes, anxiety just on 10, worried about what he's going to say, although he should be grateful for more time to prepare because his mind isn't right and because of the things he's putting into his body. I'm not condemning you for eating McDonald's. I just want to make sure I'm very clear on that. I just want you to know that what you put in your body matters. And so he goes for lunch. 12 o'clock comes around. It's lunchtime. He planned on going home and getting something healthy, but man, Taco Bell is just right there. Taco Bell is right there, I'm stressed. I need to hurry up and get back to work and look over my notes over and over and over and over again. So I'm going to go to Taco Bell, give me a quesadilla, Doritos Locos Tacos, soft taco, beefy mo burrito, let we'll throw it in there, and Baja Blast. Okay, that's the only place they sell Baja Blast. And then he gets his bag, and they gave him hot sauce instead of mild sauce. <laughs> so now he's angry, and... He's putting all this food into his system. gets back to work. He's at his, at his desk. The The uh, meeting comes around, around the end of the day. And he is just mind everywhere because he's been so stressed out because of what he's putting into his body, because he didn't get enough sleep, because the first thing he did in the morning was look on his phone and look on social media. And he got fed with the feed social media. And he gets in the meeting, and he does – terrible. And he was ready for, a, he was expecting a $10,000 raise a year with his responsibilities that were getting added. And they actually told him, nope. And one of them actually said, this is a terrible idea. So he leaves work and on the way to his car, this old lady is walking in front of him with her groceries in her in her hand. And usually he would think about even helping her, but he was so angry, so anxious, His identity was destroyed. He was so self-conscious that he actually rushes past her and bumps her, knocks her down, breaks her glasses, her eggs, and her hip, all of them, the trifecta, all of them. And he got in his car, didn't even put his seatbelt on. Self-control starts small. Didn't even put his seatbelt on, sped home, and he was so ready to get home because he knew that if he could get home, He could uh, have some beers and have some alcohol to numb the way he was feeling. So he got home, opened up, a bunch of beers, just down in it, down in it, down in it. Falls asleep, passed out drunk, in his recliner at 6 p.m., watching the game on the screen. Now we'll go to guy number two. Guy number two is a little nicer. We'll call him Robert. We'll call him Robert. We'll call him Robert. Uh, Robert uh, is an atheist. He's an atheist. Um, and he is in a very similar situation as Richard. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Teresa. I, I did forget. Very similar. He has a job, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, very normal job. And he's got another another plan. to. He's got also a plan to, to help the company and get himself a raise. literally almost mirror situation. Uh, Robert is married with two kids. He's got to get there at 9. He wants to get there early. He actually wakes up at 6.30, goes to the gym, gets home from the gym, makes himself a very healthy breakfast, some, some eggs, uh, a little bit of bacon, because, you know, get some meat in your system. Avocado toast. Is that healthy? I don't know. Um, avocado spread on some toast. Uh, he gets him a healthy breakfast. He gets to work at 8.30. Good job, Robert. He gets to work at 8.30. Uh, He finds out that the meeting is pushed back, and he's so grateful because he wants to prepare some more. Lunch, he gets off from lunch. He actually goes and meets his wife for lunch. And then they get back to work. He gets the meeting. The meeting is on the way. The meeting is here. And he does a great job because of what he's put into his system. He didn't wake up first thing in the morning on social media. He woke up and took care of himself. He spent time with his wife. The love language of his wife is quality time. He knows his wife's love language to town with her. it he does a great job. They actually give him a $15,000 raise because his idea was so good. On the way to his car, there's an old lady. And he helps her, grabs her groceries, learns her name. Her name is Edna. <laughs> if you watch Minions, then you know where that's from. My kid loves Minions right now, so he just loves watching the screen and the – anyway. He helps Edna to her car, <laughs> puts the groceries in her car, cl- opens the door for her, closes the door for her. Some of y'all don't even do that for your wife. Opens the door for her, closes the door for her, and then he goes to his car, puts the seatbelt on, <laughs> gets home to his wife and kids, and spends time with them. Now, here's the question. Don't answer this out loud. Just think to yourself. Which one of these two, Richard or Robert, deserves to go to heaven more? The answer is neither. Which one is going to heaven? Richard, because he receives salvation. This isn't really a part of my message, but um, I think there's a problem in our country where people who don't believe in Jesus are nicer than the ones who do. <sighs> do I stay here? I think I stay here. Um, Just because you go to church on Sunday doesn't mean you deserve more than somebody else who doesn't. Because grace is not earned. And so I want you to write this point down here for taking notes. God's standard isn't good. It's perfect. God's standard isn't good. It's perfect. The standard of our holy Perfect God is not good. If you were to ask people, the general public, what does it take to get to heaven? Most would say things like, just be kind, just be generous, just be nice. But really, the way to get to perfect the way to get to heaven is to be perfect. And because we cannot be perfect, we have a Savior who was perfect for us. God's standard isn't good. Good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people go to heaven. And you are made complete through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I want to make sure we understand that I'm not trying to be super legalistic when I talk about obedience today. God's standard is not good. It's perfect. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. Why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? Not because God hated them, but because Adam and Eve brought sin into the situation, and God is too holy to be around sin. Which is why in the Old Testament, you had to go through a ritualistic perform- or a thing to go into his presence. And if you didn't, you would die in the presence of God. So when God kicked Adam and Eve out, it wasn't out of hatred or disappointment or anger. It was because he just can't be around sin. And now, because God loves us so much, he wants to be with us all the time. He sent his perfect son to die for you. And now he lives with you. What an awesome thing. That you were separated from him and you were condemned to be separated from him forever, but now you get to live with him forever. So again, you don't have to be perfect. God doesn't need you to be perfect. God doesn't want you to be perfect. Jesus is perfect. But what does God want me to do? Well, let's read this verse real quick. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. You say, Pastor Braden, I'm allowed to do anything. You are, but not everything is good for you. You say. I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. So when you use Jesus' perfection as an excuse for your imperfection, that's a problem. Because, write this point down God wants my progression, not my perfection. God is after progress, not perfection. So if you're a Christian, What does the Bible teach us? It teaches us that we are new creations. And all new creations must grow. All new creations must grow. Easton is six months old now. When he was born, he was seven pounds. Now he's 16. The boy is growing. The boy loves grabbing anything and everything and just chewing on it. He's learning how to use his hands. He can roll over and roll over again and roll over again and roll over again. He just rolls all the time. He can hold his head up. Easton is growing. And I'm glad that I've grown. I'm glad I can walk. I'm glad I can go to the bathroom and I have to wear diapers. I'm glad I've got teeth and I can eat steak. I'm I'm glad that I can talk. I'm glad I can do things. I'm glad I've grown. But we we have people with bodies of adults and faith of babies. And you're mad that God's not blessing you the way you want to, but you're not ready for it because you won't even let somebody spoon feed you. You want a steak, but you don't even know how to handle baby food. You want to run, but you can't even walk. God is after, he's after growth and growth hurts. So we call them growing pains. I hope you're glad you're not the same height you were when you were four years old. I hope you're glad that you don't weigh the same when you were four years old. Some of y'all may <laughs> I hope you're glad that you can actually form a sentence. And it's a growth, and it hurts to get there. And growth doesn't happen without pain. And obedience hurts, but obedience causes growth as well. What happens a lot in our culture is we have people who are okay with dying with the same faith they started with. You got saved when you were 12, now you're 32, two decades has passed, and you still don't read your Bible every day. You still don't pray. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody today. Please, please help me. I'm trying to step on your toes a little bit. My my job as a pastor is to... Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I learned that from Pastor Craig Rochelle. Don't give me the credit, please. <laughs> that was Craig Rochelle, all of him. Comfort the afflicted. If you're in pain, I'm here to comfort you. If you're comfortable, that means you're not growing. Comfortable people don't grow. And so my job is to afflict the comfortable. But don't feel condemned. God's not mad at you. Nobody, Nobody's mad at you. We just want you to grow because there's something better on the other side of this pain. There's something better on the other side of this obedience. There's growth in store when you obey. So if you want, again, some metaphorical steak, you got to quit fighting off the spoon. If you want metaphorically to be able to run, you got to learn how to crawl. That's something frustrating with Easton is he wants to run so bad right now. He just wants to run everywhere and do everything, and he can't even barely sit up. If you want to feel God's presence in your life, don't stand like this during worship. That's what we do. This is what we do. You're mad that I can't feel God's presence and you don't even sing. You won't even lift him up. Now, I got some people in here who read Bibles, some of you, and you know the verse that says, but the Bible tells us to be perfect, like God is perfect, Pastor Braden. What about that verse? Okay, well, Holy Spirit gave me an answer to your question already. He thought it before you thought it, so I'm going to read this verse that that we think about, Matthew five forty-eight. You are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I got you, Pastor Braden, you're wrong. God is after my perfection. Well, the Bible wasn't written in English, so you got to learn how to study the Bible, not read the Bible. The word perfect right here in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, is the word teleos. I'm going to try to get you to pronounce it. It's the word teleos, which means mature, finished, complete. That's what teleos means. And when you take one verse out of context to the passage it was written in, you'll miss what it's trying to tell you. So I'm gonna read Matthew 5 starting in verse 43. I'm gonna read a couple of verses to help us understand what is this ain't really nothing to do with the, the God-making room, but I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm answering and teach. My job is to teach you Bible. Let me teach you Bible this morning. Verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the American law. It's not a law in like the law, but it's like what we hear from culture. You need to hate everybody who hates you and love everybody that loves you. Verse 44, But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. So if I don't love my enemy, I'm not acting like a true child of God. For he gives his sunlight both to the evil and the good, sends the rain to the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different? anybody else. Even pagans do that. You are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. So how do we become perfect or how do we become complete? Love. That's what this verse is trying to teach us. You want to be perfect? You want to be complete, mature, finished? Love everybody. Even the ones that persecute you. Love them all. Matthew 14 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. Matthew 14. Uh, we're going to read the story of Peter walking on the water, and when God gave me this story to, to teach on this morning, I was very, very hesitant because there's two reasons. One, I, I've taught on this story probably more than any other passage in scripture when it comes to my, my just teaching in general, um, and I don't want it to get stale. And number two, because a lot of the times when we're in church and we hear that there's a story being talked about that we've all heard before, we zone out. I've heard the story. I've I've story since I was a kid in Sunday school, Pastor Bray. Now I don't need to listen to this. Um, but God convicted me very, very badly. I didn't even have time to argue with him. He just convicted me. Um, it's a, how ignorant of you to think that people can't get new revelation from old stories. And how ignorant of you to think that everybody remembers what they were taught about this story. So I hope that even though this is a story you all have probably heard, I hope that you'll open your hearts, open your notebooks. And read along and take notes with us today. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. So what just happened, I'm going to go probably verse by verse, so we're going to go slow. But Jesus just fed the 10,000. Now, the Bible says he fed the 5,000. It was 5,000 men. Most Bible scholars believe it was around 10,000 when you include women and children as well. 10 to 15,000. So he just fed the 5,000 or the 10,000 plus. And he insisted his disciples get back in the boat and cross to the other side. Which is crazy because obviously Jesus knew the storm was coming. I'm going I'm I'm to go past that. 23, after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell as he was there alone. Uh, There's a big difference between isolation and alone time. There is power. You need community. You need people. You need church. You need to have people around you that can love you, that can help you, that can carry you, that can share your burdens. There are blessings you will only get from other people. There are also blessings you will only get in your one-on-one time with God. So let me me use my marriage for an example, and all the married people can hopefully relate to this. Uh, But me and Callie's marriage has been strengthened by getting wisdom from other people who have been married, getting advice from people who have been married longer than us. But the way that me and her relationship has been strengthened the most is when me and her are spending time together by ourselves. The best thing you can do for your marriage is date nights. Even if that date night is in the bedroom watching Netflix. Then you ain't got to be spending a bunch of money going to out to eat or something like that. The best thing you can do for your marriage is one-on-one date nights with your spouse. And what's the best thing you can do for your relationship with God? One-on-one not a date night. But intimacy with God. And oh, I love this so much. The church is called the bride of Christ. So it's playing out in your marriage too. Like your marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the, the relationship between Jesus and the church. So if you have a if you only have a relationship with God through your pastor, you don't have a relationship at all. If you only talk to God on Sundays, you don't have a relationship with God. And there is also power in, in spending time with God with your spouse, reading the word together, praying together. That stuff is good. But you have to make sure you have alone time with you and your Savior. You and your God, Jesus did it. So if you don't want to take my word for it, just copy the one that you're supposed to be copying. Jesus did it. Verse 24. Verse 24. Actually, oh, I need to. Uh, I'm glad I read my notes, cause I need to. I need to say that for a second. Um, so church is only uh, around two to three hours a week. Sometimes five or six if you do other things throughout the week. There's 168 hours in the week. So church is not enough. You need to spend time with God and you need to spend alone time. A lot of people would say I just don't have I don't have time for that. I don't have to, I have all these kids and I got my, my spouse and I got my job and I got to make sure I'm serving at church and I got all the, I don't have time to spend one on one time with God. But your screen time tells me different. I love it when the Holy Spirit tells me exactly what you're doing. You you can wake up 15 minutes earlier. You don't need hours to spend with God. He just needs a moment. That's how great he is. Spend time with them first thing in the morning, your whole mood changes. Pray with them before you go to work. Don't pray with them in the middle of work while you're angry and you're praying against everybody. (laughs) Pray with them before you go in. Before you get there, all my my, my students or all my people in school, pray before you get to school. Verse 24, meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About 3 o'clock in the morning, that's so early, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. So the disciples were probably asleep. If they weren't asleep, they were definitely tired, right, because they were doing ministry with Jesus. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Either way, they were exhausted. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid. Take courage, because I'm here. Now, God, when God showed me this, it literally blew my mind. Jesus never says, I'm Jesus. Jesus never told them it was him. He just said, take courage, I'm here. Now, what's really, really wild is the disciples had more close, intimate relationship with Jesus than anybody else. They knew what Jesus looked like. They knew what he sounded like. They knew everything about him. But the storm was so great, they couldn't see three feet in front of them, which is why they thought it was a ghost, because they just saw a figure. And then he talked, and I'm assuming he just talked the way that Jesus talks. And so he was trying to see, do they have enough faith to know that it's me even if they can't see me? And most of them didn't. One of them did. But the reason why I think this is really, really cool, this is why it's really important to study scripture, is I I just thought to myself, okay, if these disciples knew Jesus, knew him more than anybody else, why are they so scared? Because in Matthew 8, six chapters before this, he literally calmed a storm already. He was in the boat, and he calmed the storm. And when you read Matthew 8, they were terrified in that storm the same way they were in this storm. So I kept thinking, why are these disciples so scared when they know they've seen the miracles? They literally have seen all of it. And then God spoke to me. He said, "Braden, they were in an atmosphere that they knew. Okay, let me help you out, let me help you out, let me help you out. Most of the disciples were fishermen. The lead disciples, Peter, James, and John, those were like the leaders of the group. Every group has leaders. They were the ones that were the most bold, had the most faith. They were the ones who kind of led. They were all fishermen for years. That was their job. So the first thing that they do in the storm is to trust on themselves. I'm going to put this anchor down. They're yelling at the other disciples, fix the sail, do this and do that. I've been in this storm before. I've dealt with this before. I've been fishing all my life. I know what I'm supposed to do. Write this point down. Where I trust me the most, I trust God the least. Where I trust me the most, I trust God the least. The reason why they were so scared, even though Jesus had literally already calmed a storm before, is because their instinct was to trust into what they knew. They didn't lean on their. Oh, they didn't lean not on their understanding. They leaned all over their understanding. They knew what they knew, and they thought they could get through it on their own. And so, let me talk to the people who struggle with anxiety. I dealt with severe anxiety for seven years of my life, sixth through twelfth grade, all middle school, all high school. Um, as as I was preparing this message and praying, God began to reveal to me as I began to look back on all, all the moments where I felt like my anxiety was at the highest is I always had the worst thoughts when I was in situations that I was comfortable with. Like you literally would trust on yourself more in the conversations than in the places that you are comfortable with. What When we are having anxiety, we think of 17 different possible scenarios of the situation. And none of them happen. Studies show like 99% of them will never happen. And the 1% that does, God is good. Okay, and so that's what anxiety is. It is trusting on your own. Your 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 brain is so creative. Like some of you, if you if you deal with anxiety, you literally need to just think about the things that you're thinking, think about the scenarios you're playing out in your mind, and just be in awe of how creative God has created your mind. Your brain thinks of this so. It's so much imagination going on up here, and that is a powerful thing if your mind is trusted with Him. But when you're trusting on your own understanding and your own wisdom, you think of things that will never happen. Matthew 20, verse 28, verse 28. Then Peter, we love Peter, Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Now, Peter is a little crazy. When I read this, I was like, okay, why did Peter not just ask Jesus to stop the storm? I felt like common sense would be. Just, hey, Jesus, will you just snap your fingers and just say the thing and stop the storm? And I can just imagine the disciples being like, like, he says some crazy things. And so they're probably not confused or shocked by most of the things he says. But when he says this, I can just imagine the disciples literally calling him insane like Peter. First of all, that's a ghost. Second of all, wow, if that is him, just tell him to stop the storm. But when you're in fear, you don't think straight. But I love that even when you are not thinking with common sense in your fear, God still wants to meet you there. We have a very big, very big issue in Christianity where we don't tell God how we really feel. He, he, you don't even tell him what fear you're dealing with. And I love that Peter is literally so crazy like, okay, this is you, I'm trying to walk. Because Peter would rather be with Jesus in the storm than in the boat. That's the faith that Peter had. And Peter knew. He literally called him Lord. He called him by his name. He knew it was Jesus because he knew Jesus' voice. And a lot of us are what I call comfortable, content Christians. Hmm. That when life is good, so is God. When everything is lining up, God is good. But as soon as life gets rough or it gets a little wavy, that's when we question everything. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God's not really real. I don't really think I can tithe in this season, so I'll wait till I get my tax return. God is distant. God has left me. And we over-exaggerate, right? Because Americans don't go through persecution. Nobody in here is dying because of Jesus. You're not getting thrown in prison because of your faith. Americans don't go through persecution. There are people across the world literally being tortured because they believe in Jesus. We can be here freely. You don't go through persecution. But we think, oh, my gosh, God, 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 why have you left me? God, I'm going through so much persecution. And you literally just went to Starbucks and they didn't have your order. (laughs) They literally gave you hot sauce and not mild sauce at Taco Bell. But we over-exaggerate. And I'm not trying to downplay your feelings. And some of you go through real stuff. I lost a job. My marriage is failing. My kids aren't following Jesus. I lost a loved one. There are real pain. There's real storms. But I love that God is willing to meet you in all of them. Sometimes he's going to meet you there and tell you to suck it up. Or sometimes he's going to meet you there and tell you that this is not a storm. (laughs) Just go and get some other coffee somewhere else. Or stop going to Starbucks. Like there, there are some, every single problem, every single issue, God wants to meet you there. But a lot of us would rather tell God to stop the storm from getting here. Like, why, God, why did you keep this from happening first? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Because the only way for God to prove that he's greater than your storm is to meet you in the middle of it. God is trying to prove to you that he can meet you in any storm. And that he's greater than any storm. He can't do that if he keeps all the bad things from happening. And sometimes he throws the storm at you. Write this point down. God wants to meet me in my storm, not after my storm. God wants to meet me in my storm, not after my storm. I'm going to go quickly through these next few verses because I'm out of time. Verse 29. Come on, Jesus said. So Jesus commanded him. Didn't, Didn't say if you want to. Didn't say if you feel like it. Didn't say if you have enough faith for it. Come on. So now Peter has to obey. Peter went over the side of the boat, walked on the water towards Jesus. Verse 30. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified. He began to sing, save me, Lord, he shouted. Now we don't know how much time lapsed between verse 29 and verse 30. We can assume that it's a lot more time than how fast we read it, right? Peter's walking on water like he's not running on water. Um, and he's probably taking his time getting out the boat trying to see. He probably stuck his finger down first and was like, am I sure I can walk on this? But what I love about this part of the story is when we we see that when you shift your when you shift your focus from your your storm to your savior, you stand. When you shift your focus from your savior to your storm, you sink. And Peter was literally walking on water towards his savior Jesus, and he took his just for a moment took his focus away. And began to sing. Write this point down. My focus impacts my faith. My focus impacts my faith. So Jesus made room for Peter where he was, the boat, and where Jesus wanted him to be with him in the storm. And Peter had enough faith to step out of the boat and obey the command that Jesus gave him. And he walked on the water. But his focus impacted his faith. Three more verses. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Jesus said, why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. So they didn't even calm the storm until they got in the boat. So Jesus can still convict you in the storm. Verse 33, then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. So again, God makes room for us. And there's room for everyone. So I want you, and I'm going to pray in a minute, but I want you even right now to think, What what is the space that God is trying to make for me? What is the water God is trying to get me to walk on? Am I being being a comfortable, content Christian and staying in the boat? Or am I faithful enough and crazy enough to step out in obedience and walk on the water? Y'all pair with me. God, we're so